Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This month on our show, we are going to be doing something a little bit different. We are ringing in 50 years of hip-hop by interviewing all rappers all month. And we're kicking things off with, in my opinion, the greatest ever to do it, Rakim. I think there is a line between what you might call early hip-hop and modern hip-hop. And that line, well, I say it's a line. It's basically a guy, Rakim. Take a listen to Five Minutes of Funk, which is a great song from 1984 by the rap group Houdini. The MC there is Jaleel Hutchins, and listen to his flow. Now the party didn't start till I walked in, and I probably won't leave until the thing ends. But in the meantime, the in-between time, if you work your thing, then I'll work mine. We came here together so we could have fun. Me and you, baby, going one-on-one. Now this is the last chance for us to get off. So either get loose or you ought to get lost. The rhymes hit with the snare drum. One, two, three, four. I mean, that is a classic style. And it's that way pretty much throughout all the uh, titular Five Minutes of Funk. And again, not a bad song, actually a great song. It's just back then, that's kind of how most rap songs went. Now, fast forward three years. This is I Ain't No Joke by Eric B. and Rakim. Rakim is the rapper here. And it's very, very different. They think that I'm a new jack, but only if they knew that. They who think wrong or they who can't do that style that I'm doing. They might ruin patterns of paragraphs based on you and you or be DJ if anything he play sound familiar. I'll wait to eat say play him. So I'ma have to diss who broke. You can get a smack for this. I ain't no joke. Look, this is a rap about rapping. The subject matter isn't exactly revolutionary. And Rakim was barely old enough to vote when he put this down. But when you hear it, the complexity, the rhythm, the flow, it is both intricate and effortless. The rhymes flit between the abstract and the concrete metaphor and reality in mind-bending ways. Ask any rapper or any aspiring rapper who was alive at the time, and they will tell you this changed their life. And you know what? It still sounds great more than 30 years later. I've got so much to get into with Rakim, how he met Eric B., how they met Marley Marl, how Rakim looks back on his entire career now that he is a man in his 50s. And I don't want to waste any more of your time before we get into it. So let's kick things off with another classic from Eric B. and Rakim. Don't sweat the technique. Don't sweat the technique. Let's trace the hits and check the file. Let's see who bit the dot tech the style. I flip the script so it can't get filed. At least not now. It'll take a while. I change the pace to complete. 
them see get weak for every birthday trace is a scar they keep Rakim, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for the welcome, man. I'm very genuinely thrilled. So you grew up in Long Island, which, you know, at the time that you were growing up, could have felt pretty far from the beginnings of hip hop. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. So did it feel like it was coming from a long way away? Yeah, I always felt like I was on the outside looking in, you know. Knowing and, and and also knowing the speed of things in the inner city compared to living in Long Island, you know, I knew they had the advantage and all the resources right there. So it, it was definitely hard trying to, um, I guess, uh, make your mark, you know. Did you first hear hip hop like on the radio? Nah, um, growing up. And wine dance as a young kid, there was always DJs in the park, block parties, and even my brother used to have parties at the house. Um, luckily, uh, my brother knew the DJs personally, so they used to bring their equipment over to the house and sometimes let them hold it for a week or two. So I was always around it, fortunately, uh, at a very young age. Um, I was listening to hip-hop before the first rap record came out, King Tim Third. Fat back bad. Um, I remember sitting in the basement with my brother and his friends, one of them a DJ, uh, Paul Garrard. His name was uh, DJ Maniac. And um, I remember the day he came to the house and told my brother, wait till you hear this, wait till you hear this. And he gets downstairs and puts on King Tim Third, And that's the first uh, record we heard with rap on it. You're the youngest of five, is that total? Is that right? Yes. So yes. you had two older brothers and two older sisters. Yes. Were they into hip hop or were they into other stuff? Well, luckily, uh, my two sisters sang. My two brothers played instruments. My oldest brother, Ronnie, played keyboards and he was able to play uh, other instruments and write music. And my brother, Stevie, he uh, played the saxophone. And I tried to do everything Stevie did. So I wound up playing the saxophone as well. What kind of music did they like? Well, going to the top, moms and pops played all kind of good uh, R&B and and jazz music, man. I I remember, um, you know, being a young kid and hearing so much jazz and, you know, I liked it. You know what I mean? Um, And I remember being a young kid trying to understand jazz because the the first first thing I understood was like the timing was different. Um, R&B was, you know, mostly 4-4 four, four time. One, two, three, four, two, two, three. You know, all the way up to four, and then, you know, we start back over. But jazz, the timing in jazz, I remember listening to it, like, you know, just noticing right away that the timing and, and the rhythms was, was different and very intricate. And um, I think that's what gave me a, a profound understanding of time and space, um, I felt four four time was very easy, and the the rhythms that I was hearing in jazz records was you know what I was trying to emulate. Your sort of auntie who like babysat you was Ruth Brown, one of the greatest yeah, R and B singers incredible. of all time. Yes, incredible. And when I say R and B singers, I mean I'm talking about the from the dawn of R and B when R and B was rhythm and blues so she was sort of pre-rock and roll pre uh soul music r&b singer 
early 50s, mm. she, she started having Indeed. hit records. She was such a big star uh, at the peak of her career that she she was a star throughout her life. You know what I mean? Like she worked. Yes. Yes. Um, were you aware of that when you were a kid? Yes. What's, what's crazy is um, I remember sitting there watching her and it could be a normal day. You know, nine times out of 10, I wouldn't know what was going on in her life if I, you know, just watched her. Meaning, you know, a normal day, she would get up, watch TV, relax. She had her favorite snacks. She loved Slim Jims. Um, <laughs> and um, I remember, yeah, because I used to steal them. She used to have them all around the house. Um, I remember sitting there watching her, and it will be a, a normal day. And then she'll get up, go in her room, go in the closet, grab like a, a, a top shawl or something, right? She'll throw it on this big uh, um, table that she had where she did a lot of her clothes at, right? She'll throw it on there. She'll walk around the house. She'll do something. She might sit down and watch a little more TV. Then she'll grab some glue, right? She'll go over to the shawl. She just laid on this this, this uh, table. And she'll take the glue and just squirt the glue all over the shirt. Let that sit for a minute. She'll get this glitter. Come back, throw the glitter on the shirt. Let that dry. She'll shake it off. And I'm sitting there watching her make an outfit, bro. She'll buy some regular, you know, nice stuff in the store, but she'll declarate it to make it look stage worthy. So I'm sitting there watching her. She might, you know, glitter up pants or a big hat, whatever she's doing. She'll sit back down, watch TV, eat her snacks. And me not knowing that she has a show that night. So, you know, I started figuring out, like, you know, her movements. Like, whenever I seen her starting to get clothes ready and put glue and glitter and all of this stuff on it, I knew she had a show that night. But she was so laid back and so down to earth, you would never know. She never showed, uh, like, any kind of, you know, uh, nervousness. Or I, I guess she was the same person getting ready for the show and, and preparing for the show, you know, that I seen babysitting me. So, you know, it was a blessing watching that, man. You know, it, it let me know how to prepare for a show, you know. Just keep your keep a cool state of mind and, you know, stay calm, relax, do what you normally do, and get ready for the task at hand. But it was a blessing, man, to just be able to watch her, man. That's something that kind of goes three ways. I mean, it is... Like, first of all, somebody in show business is a normal human being. Well, that's one of the things. Number two, it's somebody in show business is glittering and glamorous. You know, <laughs> she's she's making she's she's got glitter on the big hat, right? Facts, facts. And number three is the thing that's in between those two, which is that in order for her to transform herself into the glamorous stage presence that I'm sure she was. You know, it's a pretty like straightforward thing to be gluing glitter to your clothes. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like she went to Bulgaria and had them encrust right. things in crystal, right? It's, it's like you are getting that glamour through the most quotidian work that there is. You just some glue and some glitter, right? Right. And 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 just seeing, you know, how creative she was. You know what I mean? Like. You know, singing and, and, and having stage presence and all that's one thing, but being able to kind of create your own outfit <laughs> before you get on stage, you know, 
it just shows the different dimensions of, you know, who she was. And, you know, and, and it's funny, you know what I mean? I do the same thing. I, I, I might have something that I'm wearing that night and maybe the hat don't match everything perfectly. You know, I got a Yankee hat, you know, it got a white Yankee sign, but I need a red Yankee sign. So I break out the Sharpie and make the, you know, sign red. So it, it's it, it's almost like when you're on stage and you uh, improvise and it's the same thing, man. So, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I, I need I need to match this up. I, I, I paint Timberlands, I paint Nikes, everything. And it's the same thing she was doing. You always did that, right? You you were painting sneakers when you were a, a kid, like a teenager. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Back in high school. Um, it's funny. When I met Biz Marquis, that's one of the things we vibed about. Uh, he used to always come to the, up to my school with different painted sneakers. And I remember the first time, like, he didn't know I painted them, too. But the first time he had on a brown and black pair of Adidas. So I looked at him. I was like, yo, those was crazy. And they was done nice, too. Nice and neat. So yo, those, those crazy beds, where you get them from, man? He said, my pops on the sneaker store in Long Island, something like that, you know what I mean? But um, later on, I told him, I know, I said, come on, man, you painted those. They don't make brown Adidas with black stripes, bro. I said, come on. So we, we used to laugh. But um, yeah, man, you know, trying to, um, number one, be original, unique, and try to have something uh, that nobody else can get their hands on. So I think that, Painting sneakers was was kind of uh, you know start of me being being original and, and trying to stand out. More still to come with Rakim. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is the rapper Rakim. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, he changed the way rappers rap in a way that no other MC ever has. Let's get back into our conversation. There used to be a thread on this uh, this discussion board for for DJs and crate diggers uh, called Soul Strut. It was just like dozens and dozens and dozens of people sharing stories of primarily getting woken up in the middle of the night by a phone call from Biz Markey, who they had never met before, but somebody <laughs> gave Biz their phone number. <laughs> and wow. him just asking them what kind of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles they have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Biz was a big kid, man. He loved toys. He loved, you know, he, his energy, man. Like, I, I remember being around Biz, and he made you love rap more. You know what I mean? looking for records or, or record shopping. He made you want to do that better than everybody else. Like, you know, the energy that he had, man, you know, was just always high energy, loved hip hop and, and loved the fact that he was a part of it and, and he knew everybody that was in it, man. I mean, you know, just, you know, R.I.P. the biz, man. How did the two of you meet? We met out in Long, Long Island at my high school. Um, it's funny. I don't know how he found out about the school, but he came up to the school one day and came to the back of the school where the cafeteria area is where everybody's kind of hanging out and was doing the beatbox. And somebody ran over to me like, yo, it's this dude over here doing the beatbox. So um, I run to the back of the hallway where the cafeterias are. And, you know, before I get there, I can hear, you know, his voice, you know, illuminating through the hallways. And I'm like, 
okay, because people played around to beatbox around my way. It wasn't nobody that good, you know what I mean? So right away, you know, I knew that this kid knew what he was doing. So I get over to him. He got the Adidas on, the shell tops, the baggy jeans on. He got the cap on, and he and, and he rocking beatboxing. So of course I saw rhyming, and you know the rest was history, man. After that we start chopping it up. He was telling me, you know, a little bit of his background and and, and what he do, and it, it went from that to the sneakers and, and and the whole thing, man. And we just um kept in touch. He would come out to Long Island and come straight to the school. And um, it got so crazy, like for, for a little while, the security guards would, would, would let him in. And then it got so crazy because people were, you know, we was drawing too much attention that they had to stop him from coming up to the school. But, um, you know, it, it, it was dope, man. I remember he was like, Yo, Rasa, it's a MC battle convention in Manhattan, 127th Street. Now, at this time, you know, I'm in Long Island, I'm maybe 10th grade, maybe. You know, I, I I wouldn't pick up and go to a show in New York and get on the mic. So Biz was like, yes, yeah, it's, it's a convention. I'm like, yeah, so so what you, he was like, yo, you should join, you you, you should enter. I'm like, yo, man, I'm not entering no battle in, in Harlem, man. He was like, yo, Rob, man, yo, you you good, you, you, you nice, man. You So he talked me into it. And that's what I mean about Biz. Like, he just made you love whatever you thought you liked. You know, Biz let you know, no, 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 this, this, yo, let's go. You're going to be good. They're going to go crazy when they hear you. And 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 like I said, we went. It was an event put together by the Crash Crew. It was maybe 1985. Um, I remember Doug Fresh was there. I think Melly Mel was there. But I remember uh, I got on, performed, and people gave me a good response. Uh, it was a brother from the neighborhood named Kid West that won. Um, he was basically from two blocks over, so everybody kind of knew him. But he was nice, and I learned a lot that night. But um, I definitely gained a lot of confidence because I didn't know that I would do that good in Harlem, New York City. You know what I mean? The place that I knew uh, held the bar on what I was trying to do. There's tapes of you and Biz performing when you're teenagers. Yeah, the, the first question I guess I have is why are there tapes of you? Like who had the <laughs> who had the sense to be like, we should record this? Yeah, we you know, everybody was in love with hip hop. Everybody was kind of playing their part. You had, you know, rappers that would write rhymes before party, you know, preparing. And you also had the the cast to be like, yo, I'm gonna make sure I record this because, you know, I think it was DJ Bilal in Long Island that recorded a lot of those, man. But um, we was we was uh, making a little noise in the neighborhood. So, you know, we was kind of uh, kind of popular, man. Let's hear a little bit of my guest Rakim, at the time known as Kid Wizard, rapping with Bismarcky beatboxing. That's so great to hear. That's crazy, man. That's crazy. 
what's wild is you're, I mean, I guess you're probably like 16 or something like that. Uh, you sound like a real pro. You don't sound like you sound, you know, a year or two later when you started recording, but you sound like, like I could have fun at that party. You know what <laughs> I mean? Rolled up, man. I guess listening to Grandmaster Kaz with Melly Mel and Kumo D, you know, those is my teachers, man. And just being a, a big fan of hip hop, you know, I tried to get my hands on all the cassette tapes that I could that was going around the neighborhood from the early Grandmaster Flash and, you know, Cold Crush Brothers, Fantastic Fire. And um, just just learning from them, you know, I had an idea how I was supposed to sound. But um, I think uh, not until uh, I knew I was going to make a record, it, it all kind of came together, man. All of these things was preparing me for the moment. But um, I definitely think I made a quantum leap from there to, you know, the first records that we did. You know, it just let me know, like, the whole world was going to listen and I had to come correct. And that style came together. To my ear, I mean, like, Cool Modi is kind of like the bridge between that first wave of great rappers and the wave that, you know, you and Big Daddy Kane sort of headlined. And that, you know, right. there was rapping for a long time was, you know, ba 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 or similar, right? It was just mm -hmm. like, let's have some fun up here and the loop from Good Times is playing. Um, and which nothing wrong with that. That's great. Like <laughs> no it's legit great. You know, you could put on those Sugar Hill greatest hits CDs right now and we would all have a great time. No um, doubt. No, no. But Cool Mo D sort of, sort of started to investigate the possibilities of you know, what if there were more internal rhymes? What if the meter was a little bit more than just the one, two, three, four that you described? Right. Um, how did you get the idea that it should be a lot more than just that one, two, three, four? Uh, I think my background, um, you know, listening to a lot of different music. And like I said, that jazz music gave me a better understanding of time and space. One day I was downstairs in the John Cole train, you know, record was playing downstairs in my mother's, uh, mother and father's basement. And for some reason, as soon as it came on, I was stuck to the record. And I remember not moving. I sat there, I was sitting in front of the, the shelves where their records are. And I used to often just look at certain album covers when, you know, they was playing music. But this day, I remembered when the record came on, I was kind of just gazing at like the ground. The record started playing and I was hooked from the first note to the last. The record went off and I was like almost exhausted. Like you wanted to cut the record back on or like you didn't know what to do after the record you know, went off. The first thing that stuck to me when the record went off, it was like, wow, I don't think he played the same melody twice. And... That's where I got my style from. I said, I'm not going to repeat a cadence in a rhyme twice. So my first albums, you know, you would never hear me, you know, repeat a cadence. It was, you know, one bar, maybe two bars. And then the next, you know, cadence was something totally different. Um, but I was trying to do that purposely because uh, 
the way I felt when the John Coltrane record went off. So I was trying to get that same effect almost when the record goes off that the listeners, you know, out of breath. So in the early days of rap, when you were a 10-year-old, a lot of rappers were, you know, they had their notebook and it was it was like a collection of fun stuff to fill the time and, and get the audience excited. Thanks. And, you know, that's why like the guys who recorded Rapper's Delight could go borrow some rhymes from somebody else, right? Because it was all just fun stuff about having fun. Right. From the moment you appeared on record, you were doing something very different. There were people doing other things, you know, Melly Mel had a lot of songs that were songs. Um, right. Thanks. But when you got into the studio, even as an 18 year old, like, I mean, there's a famous story that Marley Marl, who's, you know, one of the most significant figures in the history of hip hop, just didn't get it. <laughs> just was not yeah, into it. Up, world up. <laughs> world up, man. Was that like Biz invited you over and uh Yeah, no, actually Eric B, um a friend of mine, Alvin Tony, brought Eric B to my house. And Eric B comes uh in the house and said, uh, I know Mr. Magic and Molly Marl. I'm looking for a rapper to make a record. So uh, me and Eric B went to Molly's house. But um around that time I was like I said before, I was kinda like creating my style, shaping my style, you know, like knowing what I wanted to do and, and, and how I wanted to sound. For the most part, I was always a, a laid back person, man. So when I get to Molly's house, I'm still that, you know, young kid from Long Island. I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% confident on what I'm doing. Not sure if the great Molly Mall definitely, you know, was going like what I was doing. So I got a lot of strikes against me. So I'm there. We start recording. Gets to the end of the verse. He stops the track. And he was like, all right, yo, we're going to um, take it to the top. He said, um, I, I, I like the way it sounds, but put a little more energy into it. So I'm like, all right, go back to the beginning. Comes on, and it's the melody. <laughs> so it's turn up the bass, check out my melody, hand out a cigar. Turn up the bass, check out my melody, hand out a cigar. I'm letting knowledge be born, and my name's the R. AKIM, not like the rest of them. I'm not on the list. That's what I'm saying. I drop lines like a. Anyway, he plays it again. This time he stops it halfway. He was like, yo, maybe, maybe if you stand up, because I'm sitting on his couch. He had his little studio set up in his couch. He said, maybe if you stand up, it'll be a little more. So now I'm kind of understanding, you know, really what what's going on. But um, you know, I said, Molly, I could stand on the couch, but it's gonna sound the same. Turn up the bass, check out my melody, hand out a cigar. I'm letting knowledge be born, and my name's the R. I didn't wanna change my style. I know how I sound. I know what suited me better. Had the mic off and distorted, ready to explode. I keep the mic at Fahrenheit, freedom season, make them polar. The listener's system is kicking like solar as I memorize, advertise. So, if I was going to say to somebody that wasn't a big hip hop head, what is the thing that Rakim brought to the game? Why is Rakim one of the greatest rappers of all time, if not the greatest? Like, I think it would be easy to just say, like, oh, you know, lyricism right like everybody's rapping about partying and rakim is rapping about knowledge of self and that's true but to me the greatest distinction is about 
flow that the sound of you rapping was so dramatically different from the rappers who went before you, including the great rappers who went before you. Um, how did you build that? Like we heard the inspiration for that was, you know, you sit down and you hear my favorite things by John Coltrane or whatever. And you think, what if it could be something else? But like, how did you build it? Were you, you know, writing out the meter in your book? Were you trying line by line on stage? Like, how did you make it? I think the main thing I used to try to do was dissect the music or the beat that I was writing to. I love melodic samples because I'm able to hear uh, other things in them. People might hear a song and they, you know, they hear the bass line or they I hear other things in the music. And I use that to help make the style. I like to accent certain words off, you know, the music. Uh, my thing is to try to make, or should I say, uh, I try to implement what I'm doing as if I'm an instrument. So if the beat is doing something and I hear the music and I hear little rhythms in the background, then maybe I'm the guitar on this song and I'm, I'm doing the rhythm like the guitar. Or I might hear uh, a hi-hat riding through the whole song that, that's just, you know, dope. And I might ride the hi-hat, you know, depending on. But I would find something to help create the style. And then from that, I would uh, play off of that. And I always thought if I can hear the music different, then I can always make a new style. So uh, I think that's what it was, just trying to implement the music in a way that sounds uh, like I'm a part of the band. You described yourself as a laid back dude and that that was part of what you were putting onto record. Yes. I would say like, the guys that came in your wake, the guys who came after you and were huge stars, you know, five years and seven years after you, your Jay-Z's and your Biggie's, they built on your style by by having this similar flow characteristics, but also a kind of quality of of talking, like almost a conversational quality. And you mm. described yourself as laid back on these records. And you are in, <laughs> you are intense. Like one of the qualities of your rapping on these records is how unrelentingly intense it is. Mm -hmm. So it's a little more than just like, I understand that you're not being, <laughs> that you're not doing jazz hands. You know what I mean? Like you're, <laughs> you're not out there on the stage being busy V, no disrespect to busy V, you could rock any party, anytime. Right. Facts, facts. But um, just cause you're not out there goofing like, uh, wave your hands in the air like you just don't care who came to party, who came to party. Uh, like <laughs> your your level of intensity is enormous on these records. Yeah, you know you, you gotta you gotta try to pull it out. You know when you need to, but that's my altered ego. And you know everybody gotta don't push that button side. You know what I mean. But I think you know for the most part. My overall mannerisms is, is laid back. And, um, you know, a lot of records I do, it, it shows. But, you know, of course, you always got to turn it up. You got to try to turn it up. Well, I'm going to play a little bit of Paid in Full here, which was the mm -hmm. title track from from your first album with Eric B. Yes, and sir. this like one of the most legendary hip-hop records ever. And I think 
probably a relatively laid back Eric B and Rakim record, but I think when our audience hears it, they'll notice that that is relative. There's a few times just in that little where you flip your flow to roll up this is a hold up part is like just as the beat changes and you know I just I'm a, I'm like imagining you as a 19 year old or however old you were when you wrote that yeah, I was 17 <laughs> 18 <laughs> thinking of something that nobody in and rap music had else had figured out yet you know what I mean yeah man just you know pushing the envelope and also um you know like the paid in full concept when I when, when we came up with the idea the creative juices start flowing you like all right yeah paid in full paid in full ah right, yeah I'm gonna tell everybody to get paid in full and then it's like okay now how is that gonna happen like if it was that easy, everybody would be paid in full. So now I'm like, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to come up with a way to tell them how to get the money. <laughs> so, you know, just trying to, you know, figure it out and be entertaining and also informal. You know what I mean? And then, you know, you're thinking about, well, what about when the record come out? People say, well, yeah, you know, you're talking about getting paid in full, but you, you, didn't, you didn't give us no instructions. So that was kind of the, you know, basically, you know, nine to five. You got to work. That's what it is. You got to work hard. You know what I mean? You, you grow up, we do stupid things when we're young. And, you know, that's not getting paid in full. You got to be smart and, and you got to work. Did you have an understanding when those records came out of what their real impact was? And I mean, beyond just being hit records, they were hit records. Like, I'm sure you could go out and buy a chain if you wanted to in a way that you couldn't before. But, like, did you see hip-hop changing as those records percolated through the hip-hop world? No, to to be honest, I'm still that kid trying to see if I'm resonating with the world or what part of the world I'm resonating with. Um, still, Still, like, testing the waters. I'm paying attention to the feedback. I'm paying attention to... The magazine write-ups, everything I can get my air on. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm curious. When when we did them records, of course, I tried my best to do some real uh, groundbreaking work or push the envelope or say things that haven't been said, say things that's profound. Uh, but you don't know if you did it. You know what I mean? You, you don't know until the people let you know. So, um, you know, that first album, when it was done, we put it out and I had to wait to see how people liked it. You know what I mean? To see if I was doing the right thing, saying the right thing. And um, I'm also a real, uh, real humble cat, man. I try not to let certain things get to me. I don't want to ruin it. You know, I, I played sports all my life and I remember learning how to take compliments and not let it get to you because somebody can tell you, you know, you can have a good game and somebody can tell you how good you was and you 
let your head get big and the next week you get your kneecap pushed back. So I was always humble because I didn't want to get my kneecap pushed back. So I learned how to respond to uh, accolades. But with this here, you know, people telling you you're good and, and people telling you your music is dope. You know, I'm listening, but I don't want it to get to me. I don't want it to affect my process. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm trying to be uh, humble and modest while I'm getting the information. But, you know, after a while, it's overwhelming, overwhelming to me listening to people tell me, you know, how my music sounds to them, how I am to them or how it affected them. And I had to, you know, realize that I was doing something different, but it took a while. So much more with Rakim still to come. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Somewhere in an alternate universe where Hollywood is smarter. And the Emmy nominees for Outstanding Comedy Series are Jet Pacula, Airport Marriott, Thruple, Dear America, We've Seen You Naked, and Allah in the Family. In our stupid universe, you can't see any of these shows, but you can listen to them on Dead Pilot Society, the podcast that brings you hilarious comedy pilots that the networks and streamers bought but never made. Journey to the alternate television universe of Dead Pilot Society on MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. My guest is the rapper Rakim. Ice-T made this great documentary about rapping, specifically about rapping. Mm -hmm. And there's a segment where you're in there talking about how you write your rhymes. And you're showing the kind of intense care that you put into it. Yes, sir. And it, it was extraordinary. I mean, nobody in that film takes their craft lightly, you know what I mean? But like... Uh, the intensity of the almost like charting your rhymes that you did was pretty extraordinary. Yes. Yes. And I think that is one of the things that makes your rapping so special. I also wonder if you ever (laughs) thought about how your music or your career would be different if you were the kind of guy who instead just kind of like went into the studio, turned on the spigot, let it go for a while and turned off the spigot and went home, you know, cause there certainly are great rappers for whom that is the way they make records, you know? So mm. I wonder if you ever thought about what if I did this different? Definitely. You know, um, it's, it's funny. Um, my father one day, he was watching how I was real, uh, particular on what, shows I would go to or, you know, how I would, you know, move around in, in, in the rap game. I remember Eric B, you know, I was, I was real upset with Eric B because he went and told my pops, you know, I guess Eric thought I was still a kid. You know, I'm, I'm only, I'm only 17, 18. I get it. But he went and told my pops that I didn't like going to the studio all the time. And I didn't like the extracurricular, um, certain, parties that Eric wanted, yo, Rob, let's go here. I'm like, for what? Rob, let's, let's, for what? So he, you know, Eric B seen how particular I was with things. So I guess he thought that I was kind of not participating or not doing some of the things that he felt we needed to do. 
So he went and told my pops. My pops came to me and asked me about it. And he did say, you know, you know, this this music thing, you have to you have to hit while you hot. And that 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 echoed in my head, man, still to this day. And you know, it's just something that my father was trying to tell me, but I felt that. And I said, I said, this music uh, genre here, dad, it's a little different. I feel like people get tired of you quick. I said, it's real, real, you know, technical. I said, um, I don't think going to everything, every party in town, just cause you know, it's a party is good. I said, I wanna, I wanna be around, around for a long time. So, you know, he understood what I was saying, but he also, you know, was right with what he was saying. You know, any music business, any genre, you know, you gotta, you gotta hit when you hot. I want to play a little bit of a record from later on in your career, from the time when you were signed to Aftermath. It's from a Jay Z album, um, The Blueprint Two, and I I really thought you ripped this song up. Like you really sound great on this record. Thank you. Uh, it's it's called The Watcher. Let's hear a little bit of it. I'm rated all. My brain contains graphic things. It turned traumatic teens into addicts and fiends. It's like watching a movie through a panoramic screen, which means I can see the whole planet in the scene. Cash is the topic. The object, a fatter pocket. Some take the topic, but those that haven't got to take away to add a profit. It's catastrophic. I take the cocky and I sit back and watch it. These New York streets is ugly. I keep it gully. The world is mine and can't nobody keep it from me. Yo, my neighborhood is never sunny. In the place where the number one cause of death is money. So during the time that you were recording with Dre, not a lot of music came out. Um, I have to say that at the time, I was not that surprised that not that much music came out, (laughs) both because... Both because A, of all the people signed to Aftermath, almost nobody was putting out music. Yeah, bro. <laughs> like, there there were a lot of Bishop Lamonts, no shade to Bishop Lamont, but like there was these people signing to Aftermath and then just disappearing into a hole forever. Hmm. And I was like, Well, Dr. Dre is the most persnickety perfectionist in the history of rap music. I, and I thought I Rock was him, well. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> Rakim might be the other <laughs> most persnickety. <laughs> World up, man. So, yeah, it, it was definitely uh, it was a challenge trying to get on the same page, man. You know, Dre, Dre got a, he has a recipe that he used, it works. And I had, I had mine. We just couldn't find that fine line. You know what I mean? Was it all that scene with Marley Marl, only it's Dr. Dre and you're both grown up? 35, 40 year old man. <laughs> World up, you know, is Dre pulling me this way, trying to get me to rhyme, you know, I guess topic wise, and me knowing or feeling like that wasn't good for Rock Kim, especially at this time in his career. Um, but yeah, you know, again, is, you know, I know for him, it's hard for him to pull away from his recipe. And I didn't feel that, that I should uh, have changed mine as well. So, it's difficult, but um, I learned a lot while I was out there, man. I stayed out there for maybe three years in California. You know, just being around Dre gave me a, a better understanding or just a, a little extra love for creating and putting that extra skill or that extra time or that, you know, extra know-how into what you do. You know, he, he's a perfectionist time, too. 
I want to ask you, like, how is it different for you to write and record the songs that you've made in the last 10 years or so as mm-hmm. a, you know, not just a grown up, but like a, 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 as, as a middle-aged man, um, you know, where your main living is probably being made from your catalog and touring. You don't need to make platinum records uh, right. to earn a living. So right. how is it different to go into the studio and be like, here I am, a man, you know? Um, I think it puts a lot in perspective. Um, a long journey, but uh, I think at this point, it's, it's uh, you know, you get the justice, you feel like, you know, you made the right decisions as far as sticking to what you love. And um, yeah, man, it's, it's you know, you gotta, you gotta kinda say, all right, well, if anything, I'm more mature now. I'm more disciplined now. I'm a, I'm, I'm a better person. I'm a stronger person. I, I lived a lot of life, so I should have a lot more to say. And, you know, I, I just fix myself on, you know, the journey and who I am and, and who I become and hopefully what's ahead. I love music, man. I, I love I love the form of painting pictures with words and trying to do it in a way that, you know, stands out. I was about to say my age. Yeah, I'm 55 right now, man. And uh, I can't see not formulating words into paragraphs, into stories, into pictures. Like I can't, I can't see myself not doing that. Even though sometimes it's the hardest crap to do in the world. You know what I mean? Uh, it's definitely not easy. But I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing. I, I love it. There aren't a lot of rappers who have the life that you have. It feels like for the last now 25 years, you've had a life that's involved a lot of like stability and spending time with your kids. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That must be something you chose. Yes. Yes, man. Um, That means a lot. Um, You know, being a man first, being a good husband, being a good father. I never wanted my kids to not know me. So um, I made it my business. I used to fly home every weekend, man. We used to get two days off on the road. After that last show of the week, I would take the red eye home, and then I would take the last plane back. And I, sometimes I barely make it to stage, getting off the plane, coming from the airport, going straight to stage sometime. But I always wanted to be a father first. If you take care of your responsibilities and, and you do what you're supposed to do, I felt my job would be a little easier. That's, you know, inspiring yourself. You know what I mean? Um, to me, like, there's no bigger thing that I can do than that. So if I can do that, then I can be a better rapper. Being a good father is the hardest thing in the world. Even though sometimes you may be doing everything right, sometimes your kids might not see it. They may think that you're doing everything against them. So if I can do that good, then it'll help me be a better rapper because I'm I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, being there for my kids. I'm I'm being informal. I'm I'm, I'm firm with them. I'm I'm fun with them. You know, I'm I'm, I'm what you call a... uh, a good father, man. And that that there makes me feel good. So everything else is easy. 
Well, Rakim, thank you so much for taking this time to talk to me. I, you're welcome back on the show anytime. It's a, it's a real honor to have you. Amen. Thanks for the welcome, that man. Rakim, if you want to see him live, it's a great show. You can catch him playing across the country with acts like LL Cool J and Big Daddy Kane. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Although this week, I went home to San Francisco in the Mission District and my mom's apartment, and specifically her basement, where I found a flyer that I made when my then co-host on this show, Jordan Morris, and I were still in college doing college radio. And for a fundraiser, we did an entire episode of the show from the base of the campus of UC Santa Cruz in our underpants, uh, tidy whities specifically. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers, Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fund, Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by the great Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme song is Huddle Formation, written and recorded by the great band The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. And hey, guess what? Bullseye is now on Instagram. We are going to share interview highlights and looks behind the scenes and cool stuff we think is cool. Uh, you can find us there on the Insta at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And uh, follow us and tell everybody you know to get with it. At Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on Instagram. Let's go. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 